Welcome to episode two of Rather Be Reading, The Point Podcast. We know you'd rather be reading, and so would we. But we have some things to discuss. In our first segment, we're going to talk about the Me Too campaign, Shitty Media Men, and Moral Education, with Becca Rothfeld and Jennifer Frey. Then, for charitable reading, John Baskin will be talking to literary critic Nicholas Dames about the digital humanities. Specifically, has it been a bust, as some critics have recently alleged? And for our final segment, we call up comedian David Hetty in Montreal to talk about Larry David's notorious Saturday Night Live opening monologue. Hello, Point Enthusiasts. In our first segment, I am joined by the managing editor of The Point in Chicago, Rachel Wiseman, by Harvard philosophy student and freelance writer Becca Rothfeld in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, Jennifer Frey. I'm Anastasia Berg, and I'm stuck in England. In the wake of the public unveiling of dozens of claims of sexual misconduct against Harvey Weinstein, there has been a tidal wave of allegations against sex pests everywhere in positions of power, not in the least in academia and publishing. Meanwhile, online, a viral campaign on Twitter and Facebook saw millions of women post the hashtag MeToo and share personal stories of sexual harassment and assault. Today, we will be discussing this recent female call for a day of reckoning in its various forms in an attempt to help our audience but first of all ourselves, to understand what is it exactly that we want and are we doing what we can to achieve it? Jen, you posted on Facebook in response to seeing a lot of people around you post the hashtag MeToo and share personal stories. Maybe we can start by you telling us what you thought about it all. You know, I I wasn't on board with the MeToo campaign, even though I recognize that we should be having conversations about sexual harassment and assault particularly in the workplace, that's obviously important. But it's a question about how that conversation is supposed to take place. And I didn't like the Me Too campaign, uh, basically for five reasons. First, it's a social media campaign. So it's taking place on Facebook and Twitter. And I think that's a ridiculous space to try to have an actual conversation, let alone an important conversation. Two, the power dynamics of this particular conversation were somewhat perverse, I thought, and that it placed the burden on victims to make themselves vulnerable uh, to, you know, friends in the sense of Facebook friends, which is, you know, obviously friends uh, in quotation marks. But then also on Twitter, you know, most most Twitter accounts are are public because that's how Twitter works. Third, it conflated different forms of sexual transgression, and that made it unclear what the conversation was really about. Fourth, it created, in my mind, it created a kind of purient voyeurism and curiosity, which I think social media always encourages. But when it comes to questions about sexual harassment and assault, especially in the workplace, I think that kind of purient curiosity is... It's heightened or made more problematic. And then finally, I think it, and this is surely unintentional, but I think it reinforces the idea that a woman's intimate life is everybody's business. And that makes it seem like it's okay to ask certain questions of women, such as, oh, you posted me too. I mean, have you been raped? Have you been assaulted? 
did something bad happen to you? And I think that kind of question is extremely unwelcome for many women, not necessarily because they are ashamed. Some women are. I think many women are not ashamed. It's rather that they just don't want to talk about these kinds of experiences with just anyone, maybe in particular, not with coworkers, not with whoever might be on their social media feed. I mean, for me, that would be like students family members. But even when it comes to uh, sexual harassment and assault, you know, you might not even want to talk about it with your friends. It's just a very private thing for many women. And I think that the Me Too campaign in sort of inviting, explicitly inviting and encouraging women to sort of come out in this way, I don't know, it, it felt problematic to me for all those reasons from my perspective. I saw there was a very, very lively debate going on under your post. You were very, quite valiantly, I thought, responding to almost every post, at least at the beginning. And so I was wondering, were you surprised by the responses? I got a lot of responses. And what was interesting is that almost all of those responses were in private. They were mostly from women. And they were mostly just responses of gratitude. Like, thank you for saying those things. I felt the same way or I felt the same level of discomfort, but I wasn't necessarily able to articulate why I felt so uncomfortable about it or I was afraid to say something, which, ha which happens a lot in social media. People will write to me and say, thank you for saying that, but I can't believe you said that. Becca, what did you think about Me Too? Did you have similar feelings? So, I mean, I guess I'm sympathetic to so much of what you say, and I definitely think there has been a lot of pressure to be victimized in a standardized way that doesn't always recognize the nuance or intricacy of, of human interaction. And I think that there's a lot of pressure for people to respond with unqualified condemnation when, in fact, they may have intimate relationships with the people who are inflicting this kind of abuse on them, which makes it hard for them to condemn it publicly in an unnuanced way. But I do think that part of the reason why this response has been so one-size-fits-all is that there isn't a particularly nuanced or fine-grained language for discussion of these kinds of issues, which means that our first attempts to address them or talk about them will necessarily be imperfect. I mean, we have one word, rape, that refers to so many different kinds of actions, all of which I think are abhorrent in different ways, but I think that some of which have a different moral status than others. And I think that until a more specific lexicon is developed for talking about these issues, our conversations are always going to fail in certain respects. But the only way to develop that kind of vocabulary is to talk about this stuff more until we have clearer concepts. I think the problem a lot of the time is that we, we lack concepts specific enough to address the different shades of the problem. What, what is the right forum for this? If it's not social media, is it in one-on-one -on -one conversations with people? Are there other ways that we could conduct these conversations? If we're going to normalize the discussion so that every time that somebody comes out and reports that they've been sexually assaulted, it isn't a really crazy or traumatic thing for them, if it becomes something that we're comfortable discussing, that's going to require something like Me Too, I think, where we might not be able to talk about it yet in the most nuanced way, but in order to pass to the point of nuance, there's going to have to be a lot of garbled 
failure. I feel like it would be very hard for a man today to say some of the things that are being discussed here to take responsibility and for us to say, yeah, okay, well, thank you for taking responsibility and let's move on in the same way that I could say, hey, I, you know, I failed you as a friend, but I see that now and I, you know, and I offer you my apology and let's move on because of this lumping together of different kind of offenses. Yeah, I think that this is a real problem because I think that it's sort of an assumption of the theory that we have about the way that patriarchy or sexism works, that men are just not in an epistemic position to identify the ways in which they're failing. So it's almost an inevitability given that men will make mistakes. And so there also has to be room, I think, for forgiveness, especially because I think that the vast majority of the small acts of undermining that women face are significantly below the threshold of maybe seriously punishable sexual harassment. They're just sort of undermining comments. But there has to be room to call that stuff out because I think that that constitutes the real fabric of a female dismissal. So Jed, one of the things that you mentioned, uh, you're referring to the general critique of social media, and you're saying it brings out the worst in people in general, brings out the repugnant, repulsive version of themselves. One of the things I found quite amusing is that it, in some cases, this recent campaign, really the, the unrecognizably sweet version of some people, some of the people liking some of those posts or posting in solidarity and as allies uh, have caused people to uh, arrange responses from raising eyebrows to rage. And this takes us to, Becca, you posted an article about what you identify as a class of men in particular, who would, uh, I think, more likely than others to be part of this phenomena. Yes, I wrote this article several years ago, and I called these people alt bros, which I think now is redolent of the term alt right. So maybe I'll rechristen them and just call them philosophers or something. If anyone's read the book, The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P., I think Nathaniel P. is sort of a quintessential philosopher, although he's a... New York writer, not a philosopher. So there, there was like a spate of articles about this when I wrote my article, which was in 2014, about the man child and the alt bro. But his defining characteristics, I think, are his sense of entitlement, his sense of intellectual sanctimony. Often people talk about how this figure is typically indecisive or noncommittal. But to me, the most interesting features of this kind of person is that this person can be so smart and brilliant and compelling and in so many ways worthy of love and admiration, and yet at the same time, so chronically dismissive of women. There's some sort of assumption that the kind of reading and the kind of intellectual engagement and the education that somebody might have, you know, should be reflected in their behavior. But I wondered if there was something missing. And namely, is this the only way in which we can think of moral education? This is a this is an old problem. It goes back to Plato's question in the Mino, you know, can virtue be taught? There's a distinction that comes from Greek philosophy between intellectual virtue, that is to say, having a well-formed mind, and then moral virtue, which would be having proper appetites, wanting the right things. Aristotle famously thought that in order to have practical wisdom, that is to say, in order to know really how to live well, you already have to have moral virtue. You have to have right appetites. You know, it is important that you be exposed to the right ideas, that you sort of have the right theory. But having the right theory is not going to make you a good person. If we really want to get serious about changing the workplace environment for women, we have to get more serious about changing the environment for women, period. We 
need to do a lot more to stop objectifying women. I mean, it happens so early on. You know, I have a 10-year-old daughter and it just kills me the way that she is already being trained up in this very perverse culture. You know, there's just only so much you can do as a parent to fight it unless you're just going to like keep her at home. (laughs) (laughs) So I agree with a lot of this. I definitely think that women are systematically objectified. But I think that we also live in an extremely puritanical culture in the sense that women are often encouraged not to subjectify themselves. And so I think that part of the reason that it's really difficult for people to talk about sexual assault or to admit that it's happened to them or to come out and discuss it is because every mention of sexual assault is such an act of abject exposure. You make yourself vulnerable when you talk about this because talking about sexual experience from a female perspective is something that just isn't done. It's not just that we need to desexualize our culture, but that we need to resexualize it, but in a different way that is more friendly to female expressions of pleasure, maybe more tolerant to certain forms of sexual deviance in such a way that people can feel more comfortable talking about their negative sexual experiences. Is so, so sorry, is the suggestion that we should just all be talking more about sex? Both that we should do that and we should change how we talk about sex so that we're more tolerant of discussions of sexual pleasure, a little bit less prudish and in, in thinking about sex as an important human activity. As a person who's studying philosophy, I don't think that there's that many really serious treatments of the experience of sex and how important it is in, in human life. Yeah, well, certainly not in analytic philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, this sounds, Jen, what do you think? This sounds like a place of real disagreement. Is being more sex positive going to help us? Or is being perhaps more conservative about sex going to help us? I don't know. I mean, sex positivity is sort of one of these words that either means something that I disagree with or it means nothing. And sure, sex is a, is a human good. You know, it, it, I think we can all agree about that. Oh, I disagree. Yes. Just for the record, I definitely disagree. It really depends on the sex. Uh, I think that I, th- I think I think sex is inherently perverse. I think it's quite perverse that we actually engage in it at all. And it's a really, really strange and mysterious form of pleasure. Webs. <laughs> no, it is. It totally is. Okay, that's that's cool. I <laughs> yeah. So I I do. So sorry to say that something is a human good isn't to drain it of its mystery. You know, human beings are a mysterious mysterious creature. I, I think sex is good. So if you want to say I'm sex positive, then fine. But I also, yeah, I suppose I I might have more concern. I mean, I'm more cautious about all of this, I think, than many than many of of my friends. But I, I think that I agree with Becca that we shouldn't treat sex like it's something that you just shouldn't be talking about. There was a New York Times article recently where they profiled this group of mothers whose sons were accused of sexual assault on campus. And there was this one quote that I keep thinking of. One of the mothers was, you know, a lifelong Democrat, very liberal, self-described feminist, and said that she had raised her sons in a very respectful home. And she said... We don't need to teach our sons not to rape. But how do you understand that, Rachel? Well, I thought that what she's pointing to is something like, perhaps something like rape is not 
the explanation of why it still happens is more complicated than thinking that, you know, um, mothers didn't teach their sons to speak nicely to women. It seems to me that most, you know, most sexual harassers and uh, rapists and uh, sex pests and creeps, they, they know how to behave when they really want to. I mean, that's something actually that, Becca, you brought up in your Chronicle piece, right? You, you say sexism in the university and in the world of arts and letters is more often a failure of empathy than a failure of understanding. But, <laughs> but it's hard to get people to act on that. I mean, I think that that's something that learning how to read better can do. I'm inclined to think that fiction can help people understand what it would be like to inhabit an alien experience. Yeah, but I think that that gets at something about why we find these philosopher bros to be so reprehensible is there's a sense that they should know better. They've read Virginia Woolf, but yet they still don't seem to understand. I think they're I think I'm inclined to say that they are probably reading Virginia Woolf badly. I mean, I think that if you read Virginia Woolf and you don't come away from that experience with a greater appreciation for what women have suffered, you're probably not a very good reader. You know, I I have constantly been amazed by what I mean, it's obviously philosophy is an extremely male discipline. And so really from undergrad on, you know, it would often be the case that I was the only woman in the room or the only woman in the class. You know, you kind of cultivate this sense of like just trying to be one of the boys or whatever, because what else are you going to do? But it would it would always amaze me what they felt like they could say in front of me. And then they would just dismiss me when I was offended. And they would just say, well, you're just like a weird Catholic. So of course, all this talk about sex, it just offends you or whatever. And they're talking about who amongst their undergrads they want to sleep with, who's their hottest student. You know, I mean, it's just... But it's just, it's like the constant discourse, right? These are all self-described liberals, and they would chastise me. I'm I'm not sufficiently liberal. I'm uptight, blah, 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 because I'm like some kind of whacked out religious nut or whatever. So my opinion clearly doesn't matter. Or I'm so unlike most women. You know, I'm just uptight. It took me a long time in philosophy to realize that no, the, the problem in this room is not me. One of the things that came out, uh, the bigger scandals that came out in the wake of Harvey Weinstein was the New Republic's Leon Wieseltier. Many women have come out to describe a certain kind of pattern of behavior that included a lot of sexual innuendo, a lot of jokes that people said in retrospect have made them uncomfortable. I thought quite interesting that upon meeting a woman, he would kind of try and figure out, gauge her, you know, what she's comfortable with and uh, take some pleasure in making, you know, people feel a little uncomfortable. Sexual contact that was wasn't necessarily asked for. Rachel, you spent some time at the New Republic? Yeah, I was I was an intern there uh, the summer after I graduated from college. How does this look in the moment? Is it something that is visible? Is it something that a whole room cringes over? Uh, is it something that goes unnoticed? So I should say that I didn't have a ton of direct contact with Leon, but it was a very male-dominated workplace. It was not particularly friendly to women, although there were a lot of women working there, usually in sort of assistant positions. I mean, there were a few women at the time who were in management positions, but it really was not pervasive. 
Leon was just a force of nature. He had a huge personality. He was charismatic and could really be domineering in editorial meetings. And then afterward, sometimes his assistant would come and sit on his lap in front of people. It seemed weird, but it also didn't seem like people were calling it out or made uncomfortable by it. So I think there was just kind of this sense of, you know, Leon is Leon. As a young woman trying to break into publishing, it was a little bit alarming, but it also just seemed actually consistent with what a lot of other women I knew who were in similar positions at similar points in their career were telling me. I mean, my friends who were working at other magazines also had similar stories. So it just sort of felt like that was the culture. I think that's so interesting because I just imagine being in that room and thinking like, who's the one who's supposed to say something? If I'm not mistaking, a young, young woman, youngish woman that comes into the room, voluntarily sits on someone's lap. He doesn't seem to mind. You're, what are you at the time, Rachel? 19, an intern. Are you supposed to stand up and say, excuse me? When we're trying to introduce nuance in the conversation, I think thinking about the ways in which we collectively create these kind of environments is also important and something that Me Too, as far as it's trying to speak about the systemic problems, the environment problems, and, and the kind of uh, constant undermining that's happening is something that would be hard to capture. I think what we need to have is the expectation that those who have a modicum of power or security in the workplace should be the ones that we expect to say something. Also, we should have... We should have more women um, in those positions, and we should be somewhat suspicious of environments that women have not been able, for whatever reason, to make it into those. Maybe something has gone seriously wrong. So I've worked with several editors who, during the process of editing me, have asked me on dates or have made passes at me. Uh, and once when I was talking to one of my friends about this, about these situations and how I wasn't sure how to handle them, so I kind of went along with it, the friend basically accused me of being a scab or a gender traitor and said that I, in going along with it, was making things harder for women who wouldn't go along with it. I understand that perspective, but I also think that it's extremely important to be sympathetic to women who are put in an initially difficult position uh, by men who are relentlessly lecherous towards them. And I think that women need to be careful not to put each other in additionally difficult positions by blaming people who are disempowered for not knowing exactly what to do or for maybe not standing up to power when you're not really in a position to do so. I was shocked. Uh, or perhaps sort of disappointed, but then uh, recalibrated to, uh, no, no wonder. I did not see anyone ask about pressing charges and complaining. I understand fully that complaining is very, very, very hard. And I understand the arguments against putting the onus on people reporting. And I also say personally that I cannot say with confidence what I would do. And I would definitely understand the very, very strong incentive to not make things public in different ways. But what I wonder is that of all the kind of offers of support that I've seen, I did not see a single offer to support you in complaining. Can I go with you to complain? And that's something that worries me because I, I worry that we settle for one kind of response and a very important one, emotional support, sympathy giving, creating effective communities. But it becomes an exclusive form of dealing with the problem. And I think this also goes back to Jen. I think it was your first point, the general problem of elision of differences. Workplace harassment is very different than other situations. But it seems like also there are things that are illegal. I worried about uh, the kind of mistrust that we seem to accept 
in our institutions and in law enforcement and various kinds of institutions that are trying to enforce justice. Um, and I wonder what you guys think. So I think that there's many specific problems with this manifestation of the legal system and the way that it treats sexual harassment and assault. But it's hard for me to imagine any system that would be fair, that wouldn't require women to relive their experiences in some measure. And I think that even if the system were vastly improved, that's sort of an intractable feature of pressing charges, even in the most ideal world. And I think that many people would probably not want to do that completely justifiably. In order for the sort of thing that you're suggesting to happen to happen is really to have more women in the room. I mean, I'm constantly amazed. So I have a lot of kids. So I've been pregnant a lot and I've been pregnant at philosophy events a lot. And people just don't understand that I get really uncomfortable when everyone is only talking about my body. Like, even if it's supposedly like positive, I mean, you often get the comment like, you're so big. You're just like, well, you know, I am just dating a human, but like, what? what? <laughs> Sorry, what is the polite response to this? Thanks. <laughs> so I was giving a talk at a conference very recently, and, and I was extremely pregnant. I was like eight months pregnant with my sixth kid. And we were on the break, and it was me and this other woman and this, you know, very nice man, but he was just sort of so obviously clueless, and he was just going on and on and on about how large my stomach was and how it and so I finally just said you know I don't want to talk about my body and he was like oh well are you offended he's like I'm complimenting you I'm just saying that it looks so weird because you're clearly very skinny but then your belly's so big so it's jarring so he's, he's like digging in deeper this woman next to me god love her she finally was like what don't you understand? What she's saying is she doesn't want to talk about her body with a stranger. And you respond by continuing to talk about her body. Like, what, like what's wrong with you? And then finally, he was either so embarrassed that he couldn't stand there anymore or he got it. But either way, I just sort of wanted to hug this woman and be like, thank you. And then we just sort of rolled our eyes. You know, was was he trying to upset me? No. Was he being extremely annoying? Yes. You know, it's like, do I want to report him? No, I just want him to be less clueless. That like making the conversation about my body as opposed to like my paper, for instance, or really anything is just completely inappropriate. Often, if you're in like close sustained proximity to someone who you like a lot, but they're also doing bad things, it's not exactly clear what like the remedy for that is because it's such an emotionally difficult situation. It doesn't have an obviously bureaucratic solution. It's like a human problem. So it seems like the solution is often a human solution. I don't think something like justice is inhuman. And I worry about how we seem to kind of relegate different tasks that we used to take upon ourselves as a community to do together. And I see them all being given away but in between those different things that I was seeing with Me Too, there were just cases where I thought these people need to be brought to justice. Is that why they call me a sullen girl? Sullen girl. This is charitable reading.
On this episode's charitable reading, Is the Digital Humanities a Bust? In an article published on October 15th in the Chronicle Review, English professor Timothy Brennan argued that, after a decade of universities and arts organizations lavishly funding academic projects that promise to use computers and machine learning to transform humanistic disciplines, it was time to admit that the results had been uninspiring, even embarrassing. Not only had the new digital methods failed to transform these disciplines, but, Brennan argued, where they had had an effect, it had not been a positive one, sapping funding and brain power from the projects that justify the humanities in the first place. The night Brennan's article was published, I attended a panel in New York in honor of Canon Archive, a book of essays published by N Plus One in conjunction with the Stanford Literary Lab. The Literary Lab is run by the esteemed critic Franco Moretti, and has been the most conspicuous manifestation of the digital humanities mindset in literary studies ever since it was started seven years ago. The panel, featuring Moretti and the literary critics Nicholas Dames and Leah Price, took stock of the lab's progress at its seven-year mark, with Moretti remarking that, quote, it's a process that will result in something great, or not. Afterwards, I met with Dames, a professor of humanities at Columbia and a literary critic I've long admired based on his articles in places like Public Books and The Atlantic, in his office at Columbia. We discussed the panel, the role of Moretti's literary lab in Dames' own work, and the question of why, for those professionally committed to literary studies, reading never seems to be enough. Imagine a brain whose left side is as brilliant as its right. A brain as artistic as it is logical, that can calculate and create. Such a brain exists in the remarkable new Apple II GS. Moretti expressed these sort of notes of modesty or disappointment about the literary lab. You know, he said that seven years ago when he started it, he told everyone this was going to be one of the most important things that he did in his career, and he seemed not so sure. One quote was, it's a process that will result in something great or not. (laughs) Um, And uh, I'm curious if that surprised you, having followed some of what they've been doing over the years and worked with them a little bit. I was surprised by by the modesty a bit. As I pulled back from that event, I saw how caught he is. You know, I recall that one of the pamphlets that he published now years ago, there was an article in the New York Times that lampooned it, essentially. The example was that he had gone through all these computational lengths to prove that Hamlet is at the center of Hamlet. And, <laughs> and the, the New York Times piece had a lot of fun with this. And Franco pointed out, in fact, that had to have been the case. That was a success that you prove the method against fairly known outcomes to show that the method actually works. So Mm. in in some ways, not having a groundbreaking, surprising result wouldn't always be a problem. It would actually be a confirmation that in some ways the method catches what it is designed to catch. I do think there's some new things that have been found. There's a paper in that collection, Canon Archive, that demonstrates that at least 19th century English fiction gets more and more linguistically concrete as the century goes along. And this would be true even of writers we tend to think of as highly abstract, someone like George Eliot. That is something no one had ever seen. More and more concrete? What does that mean? A vocabulary that tends toward the simple, moving away from abstractions, syntax that tends to be more and more stark. I don't think that that's something that our normal histories of 19th century fiction have caught. 
And it also partially explains the difference between the small set of texts that we call the canon and that unread set of texts called the archive. The archive actually tends to be populated with texts that are um, much more abstract, the sentence structure much more mm-hmm. ornate. Something about that tone seems to become less and less in the vanguard of things. In some ways, that's kind of inverse of what you might expect, that the canon represents a kind of high literary complexity. The things we don't read are, are, are too simple or addressed to a, a less educated audience. It's almost the reverse. Hmm. The problem, of course, you know, problem and opportunity with a result like that is, all right, so what does that mean? And that's the sort of hermeneutic leap that is sometimes difficult to do well or to do yeah. convincingly. But I thought that was a fascinating result. Well, again, it actually in some ways points to something more interesting about the canon than about the archive. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's something we yeah. maybe hadn't thought right. about, about what makes a work right. canonical. Right. What do you think that Moretti thought the literary lab was going to accomplish? Because <laughs> I got the sense at the panel he had certain expectations and somehow he wasn't sure they were going to meet them. But I was never clear exactly what those expectations were. Right. I suspect he thought that if if you stopped studying 100 novels and you started studying computationally 100,000, you would see things that were completely different than was the case mm-hmm. with that collection of 100. And it turns out that in certain ways, the 100,000 novels resemble the <laughs> canon of 100. The, the differences are less severe than you might have expected. Well, this is, this is something I've noticed a lot when I've read articles, not just from there, but in the digital humanities in general. They, they do this right. thing where they read a hundred th- thousands of books and then they tell you something, say, about Victorian novels that they you know use obscure language when they talk about sex. And you're like, well... Our critics have, like, we knew this, you know, like, and I guess your earlier point is in some ways that shows the accuracy of the method, but there is also this question of like, maybe in a way it's confirmed the accuracy of our previous methods too. It, it could, it could. I mean, which, which would actually be, it's interesting. That would oddly be a heartening result, wouldn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, for me, but, for sure. but, but that's not often how it's treated. It's treated as not a heartening result, but a real failure. For me, I get this sort of a little bit of resentment when it's like this idea that, okay, now that the computers have shown us it, we know it. As if we didn't know it before, I guess that's where I think sometimes maybe people that have a more traditional sense of what literary criticism does chafe a little bit at the kind of claims that get made. It's true. Although, you know, something I've noticed with students in recent years, again, if if I make the claim, this word is tremendously important to understand in this novel. And here's some places where it occurs, and let's think about how it's yeah. used. If I say that now, the temptation of my students would tend to be, let's see if it's really true. <laughs> let's, let's actually do, let's go in and do a word count. It's easily done. Because oh um, they've all been corrupted. Well, corrupted or, or that's a kind of productive <laughs> no, skepticism. No, I, yeah, right? yeah, like yeah. They, they're not buying what I'm telling them without some verification. You told a story on the panel about how you first came to Digital Humanities and to Franco's Literary Lab. And the story was that a student came up to you and sort of asked you after one of your classes, why do we only study certain words from a novel as opposed to all the words in the novel? And you could sort of translate this to why do we only study certain books as opposed to all the books, which goes to this canon verse archive distinction that Franco talks about. I wondered, first of all, just to have you say a little about why that moved you in the direction of seeing the value of the digital humanities, but also to ask the question behind it, which is something like, is it really true that as a traditional literary critic, you don't have an answer to that question? 
I wouldn't say it moved me to the digital humanities. It moved me into a position of anxiety, kind of mm -hmm. constant <laughs> low-level anxiety, that I didn't have a good answer for that. The best answer I could give her was something like critical intuition that tells me because I've trained in this field for a while and have read around as much as I could by the age of 30, which is how old I was roughly when this happened, that this particular passage or these particular terms are really, really important and these others are less. That's not a sufficient answer. This student really had highlighted for me something I knew conceptually but hadn't really felt in my bones, which is this problem of the hermeneutic circle. I was simply choosing to find details that already confirmed an intuition that in a sense, could only be buttressed by the very details that I mm -hmm. was choosing. What's the way out of this? And so when I first heard about some of the experiments in the literary lab at Stanford, I was really struck by the way in which they were actually reaching towards some principle of falsification. Mm -hmm. If you saw a larger set of examples, and a larger set that would be large enough, you could not have actually read this yourself. It could be demonstrated that your theory was wrong. And this would extend not just to your particular argument, but to almost any familiar claim in the profession. It's a critical commonplace that over the course of the 19th century in Western Europe, omniscient narration starts to dominate. But that claim is really based on a small handful of examples. What would happen if you looked at the entire breadth of 19th century fiction and found out that that was wrong? We don't really know what would happen. So I think it's, it's an open question for the humanities. What happens when you falsify a theory? Do we mm -hmm. get rid of the theory? It's clear cut in the sciences that that theory would vanish. For us, it's not so clear cut. I mean, what you just described would be a clear objection to a scientific theory. You know, you only study certain cases as opposed to the whole body of evidence. Right. The question of whether it's an objection to a literary theory goes to the question of what literary studies really is. I remember uh, when I was studying English at Brown, a lot of the classes were about studying history and culture through literature. And if that's the case, then I thought, well, why do we read the best books? Really, you ought to read the worst, the most, right. the most conventional right. books, because the right. best books are actually the ones right. where the authors probably are going to have their most individual spin and do things that are going to be less germane, just learning about the underlying culture than right. the sort of run of the mill. Yeah. novels. But for me, that then said, well, maybe this is the wrong way to be studying literature. <laughs> and so Franco kind of wants to say, he says in Graphs, Maps, and Trees, this thing like the canon and the archive is just a useless distinction. But that all goes to the question of, well, what is useful? I mean, for instance, the recent essay you wrote about Jane Austen, which is a more sort of traditional form of literary criticism and looking at how the book's been received and why the ideas in that book still matter to us, <laughs> that's not going to be affected necessarily by digital right. Right. methods, right? Right. right. You know, it, no, that, that won't. And I, I think there's a uh, misconception that the digital methods produce a kind of all or nothing world mm -hmm. where you either have to adopt these methods wholesale or you completely refuse it and remain with what you know. In fact, I think what's really interesting is the middle ground between those two things, the way in which certain digital methods can be brought into what are otherwise pretty traditional projects to give us an insight into larger scale historical processes that normally are somewhat invisible. I'm working on a project right now that is in many ways extremely traditional. This is your book about the history, the history about of, the, of the chapter. The history of the chapter yeah. right. But there's a question I had as I was writing this, which uh, only a digital method can really answer, which is simply, does the chapter over the course of, say, the 18th and 19th centuries get longer or shorter? That's easily answerable. I mean, constructing the corpus is the hard part, but that's mm -hmm. something that's easily answerable. 
if the answer is, as it turns out, that it actually gets larger and larger and then sort of plateaus, what my temptation is, is to then use that to read individual instances. If somebody like, say, George Eliot is wildly out of the norm with her chapter length, why? You know, what, what is she trying for there? What is different about the way she's doing? That's my temptation. Yeah. That would, I think, not be the scientific result of that study. Right. It would be actually to stick with the norm and think about why that norm exists. But as a humanist, I am drawn maybe more to the exceptions to the norm. The question is simply knowing what the norm is. Yeah. And that's something that digital methods are very, very good. I mean, even in older theoretical methods, there was always this question of, are we learning about the background to better understand the work? Or are we learning about the work to better understand the background? And in Franco's case, it's not so clear to me. I mean, he does sort of, in Graphs, Maps, and Trees, at least, which is the main book of his I've read, he does sort of have this vision of literary studies as almost flattening out. Treating everything democratically seems to be part of the goal. It's a version of literary studies that is is much older than I think he's often given credit for. It does go back to early Russian formalism, where for him, the real motor of literary history is what the Russian formalists called the device or the technique. How you develop a history of a technique, whether it's omniscient narration, whether it's free and direct discourse, that would be a history that largely doesn't take into account individual writers. There might be inflection points in that history where a certain figure becomes incredibly important, but you need some way of pulling back yeah. into a broader picture. In that sense, that has nothing to do, oddly enough, with digital tools. That has to do with a much older conception of what counts in literary history. That's a much older argument. So yeah. in a way, the digital tool is just another way of having that argument. But I, I sometimes think that the computational aspect is a bit of a ruse for what's the underlying mm -hmm. methodological question. You know, maybe the fault line here is, is between people and techniques. This is, I think, what's provocative about the literary lab is prioritizing the technique over the person. We tend to be more comfortable with people than with devices or techniques, maybe for good reason. Or I would argue we have many other areas of our society that are more, that are more comfortable with techniques and technology than with true. people. That's probably true. <laughs> I take it that yeah, one yeah. thing literary studies <laughs> and novels bring to us. I mean, I think it's like there is this tendency to want to explain away what a lot of people come to literature for in the first place, which is this confrontation with another mind. I feel that most of us in our original draw to literature, that's what brings us in. And then there's this question of, okay, what does that mean for someone who's a professional doing this? And that's where it becomes complicated. I, but, I'm, but I'm skeptical of the, of, the, of the tendency to completely abstract from that experience. I've had these moments too. There was an administrator here who was a social scientist who once commented to me about what it is I do. He said, well, you just study the artifacts, but we study the culture. It was a not so veiled insult, right? <laughs> you, just, you just study individual instances, but we understand the totality. Oh, sure. There's some truth to that, which is we're trying to defend the individual artifacts. We often are stuck in this kind of uncomfortable middle ground. Any attempt to pull us all the way back to the artifact or all the way back to the culture itself is going to make some people feel uncomfortable. I wanted to return to one thing also. You said one other thing you said on the panel. You made this point about how the essays in Canon Archive, in a weird way, kind of end up reproducing this novelistic quality of the objects they study. Which also was sort of satisfying to me, this sense of the sort of revenge of the novel on the scientific method. Um, well, they, you know, as, sort of, as you mentioned earlier, right, Franco did say that he started this project with immense hopes. 
and that did remind me of 19th century buildings, Roman, where you, you, you start with... Uh, Great expectations. Yeah, you know, that there's a sense that anything is possible. And then there's a chastening process that occurs throughout the novel. And you end with feeling that you've accomplished something, but maybe less than you would have thought, but also not nothing. That, you know, the digital humanities have come to a point where Franco can say, we have done something, but it's modest. Seems to me uh, the maturation of the approach I would be much more skeptical with any methodology if, if the insistence was still, nothing is the same after this. segment today, we wanted to talk about Larry David's already infamous Saturday Night Live monologue. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of sexual harassment stuff in the news of late, and uh, I couldn't help but notice a very disturbing pattern emerging, which is that many of the predators, not all, but many of them, Are Jews. <laughs> the monologue, in which David transitions from Quasimodo to Harvey Weinstein to Albert Einstein to pick up lines in Auschwitz, was a big hit in the point office. So we were a bit perplexed when it started getting attacked all over the internet, including by the well-known comedy critics at the Anti-Defamation League, who called it offensive, insensitive, and unfunny. We couldn't think of a better person to talk about the routine with than the stand-up comic and comedy writing instructor at McGill University, David Hetty. Hetty, himself a renowned maker of jokes about the Holocaust, was featured in our recent symposium, talking with his sister Sheila about what comedy is for. Hetty's new comedy album, And You Will Regret It, is due out this winter for stand-up records, and will be playing some clips throughout this segment from his hilarious previous album, It Was Okay. As a as a comedian, and not to mention as a Jewish comedian, how did you how did you uh, view the Larry David monologue and you know some of the some of the criticism it's gotten? I mean, I'm a huge fan of Larry David's. Uh, I guess I should say that, and so I find him a you know very endearing character. And so I don't know. I thought, I thought this was Larry David basically being Larry David. He introduces himself as someone who's tolerated. <laughs> you tolerate me, you tolerate me, and it's like, yeah, this is the this is the role he plays, this is the persona, basically. Yeah. You know, and the whole Jewish aspect, I think that's very much in keeping with playing this little, like this outsider kind of provocative character who's kind of underground and lurks in the shadows. <laughs> and um, <laughs> there's this kind of thing of like the mind and the body, and you know, you, you know, we wish we were Einstein. I want the Jews to be like Einstein, but too many of us are like Weinstein. <laughs> right. I mean, I think there's a definitely self, you know, deprecation streak in Jewish humor for sure. And there is this whole, you know, the, the caricatures and in, in Nazi Germany and kind of just like, you know, scurrying from one place to another. And that's a stereotype. And yeah. to, to play with that is totally fair game. And to not tell these jokes because the dumbest of society might take it seriously. Like, if you're going to always watch to say because 
because of the stupidest sector of society, then like that's no way to do anything in life. And then no one gets to deal with these problems in life in any way for fear that others may misunderstand what they're saying. Like someone on Twitter with 143 followers will like saying something online and then Variety quotes you in an article. <laughs> like who and these people really have like they have nine followers. Like what is like what is going on? It's not even a person with authority. Like, there's no argument being made. It's an opinion. Someone saying this was terrible. Right. That's it. Hashtag SNL. So <laughs> I thought it was very self-aware because even like at the end when you know he goes into like, the concentration camp, a joke. I like how he says, you know, yeah, he's rejected by the woman. If we ever get out of here, I'd love to take you out for some latkes. <laughs> you like latkes? What? What I say? Is it me or is it the whole thing? Is it me or is it everything? Is it the whole thing? <laughs> to me, and to me, the whole thing is like also kind of a reference to the culture we're in. How is this joke and this whole performance that he's putting on going to be received? I don't know if it's like if you know he was thinking about it in this in depth. But I was like, okay, you're not just like it's not shock, it's not trash. Yeah, I was like, I don't know, this is perfectly legitimate comedy. And the thing that I found so hilarious about what the, the ADL, you know, they came out, they said, you know, we find them offensive and, and unfunny. And their whole mission is to stop the defamation of Jewish people. And here they are <laughs> revealing Jews that have no sense of humor, you know, or acceptance. And I was like, this is the worst. So anyway. Yeah, I, I thought a little bit in the response to, to him of some one of the things you said in your interview with Sheila about the way that people don't consider comedy as art. There was a sort of way of evaluating the jokes on like, a, well, is this appropriate or not? But not a lot of thinking about the way the whole routine fit together, which when you actually think about it, there was this this whole sort of theme of the Jewish experience throughout this, and, and particularly in relation to women. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And as well, I mean, like, I don't like this whole kind of this sanctimoniousness, which people are talking about comedy now, when the whole point is like to cut away at that. To me, these aren't questions of, of, of art. They're questions of politics, which people are introducing. And people aren't really, they don't care about the comedic achievement or how, I don't know, one line that sticks out for me that I thought wasn't done well and comedically was the, um, there are no good opening lines in a concentration camp. And I was like, uh, like to me, that evokes the image of a, of a line, you know, like if, like a lining up to go, you know, to uh, wherever in a camp. And I was like, uh, I was like, I think that's kind of an error comedically. But do I think he's a terrible person or is inappropriate? I was like, no, it's like the joke didn't go as I would have liked as a comedian. What then, in your opinion, would make for a good Holocaust joke? Well, <laughs> I, what makes for a good Holocaust joke? I mean, I think if you're going to deal with a grave topic, the quality of the, the joke comedically really has to rise to that weight. I mean, you don't have to advocate for like a value one way or the other, but at least if you show some sort of understanding of the issue which you're dealing with. And I think that Larry David kind of understands this, like his whole thing, like even his delivery, like he pauses, he knows it's uncomfortable and people expect this of him. And like, he's, he's, he's not cavalier. He might be a little blunt, like a little clunky somehow, but also that's, that's who he is. He doesn't give a shit really. He's, he's a billionaire and, or whatever. And like, he, this is what we love about him. You mentioned that you have been working on some Holocaust jokes. <laughs> Yeah, I have this is this is Holocaust joke that I like that I have I don't know a forthcoming uh, album about like who can say what in this claim to authority and identity politicking. 
can Rachel speak about the Holocaust? And it's like, no, she wasn't there. She wasn't there. Is it, you know, or can like Morris? It's like, he wasn't there. He wasn't there. You know, we're <laughs> told about, uh, you know, I, some other Jewish name, you know, you know, David can, it's like, yes, he, he was there. He was there. You know, he experienced it. And it's like, well, how can you, how do you, how can you tell him? It's like, you know, he, well, he never came back. <laughs> so it's like, these are the, these are, these are the, these are the logical ends of the arguments we're making. Like no one can say anything about such a horrific event. There's this new field of academia, though, which asks uh, what would have happened had decisive moments in history turned out differently. And apparently, had Hitler won the war, um, people wouldn't get so fucking upset when I tell a Holocaust joke. <laughs> These aren't questions that artists have. I think these are things which people who are concerned with art try to like, cut themselves off from because it's not it's not their concern and it doesn't help them create what's really fascinating i think about the whole snl monologue as well is that you see the band members in the back mm. and you see their responses and this is something kind of very traditional that like you know the, the speakeasy comics used to play to the band members like you know like if i made the band laugh then i've done a good job are they are they so, laughing in the snl video at the beginning, it does take a turn a little bit when he goes into, I don't know if it's the Harvey Weinstein stuff or the, or the concentration camp stuff, but it turns a little bit, not for all of them, but, but again, it's okay. Someone can be prefitting something without really having that, that burst of laughter. There's a different way of taking it in. And it's okay if there are moments in, a, in an eight-minute comedy set, if something is being done that isn't eliciting wild laughter. You know, you can do more than just, you can communicate a complex idea. I'm sorry. Like I know that you come to a comedy show uh, expecting to laugh um, and enjoy yourselves, uh, but life isn't fair. Um. <laughs> there are a lot of different reasons why someone might go to a comedy show, but presumably one of them is to laugh. Do you think that we should revise our expectations? You don't have to laugh. You don't have to laugh when understanding and appreciating something comedic. Like, I think that people who are criticizing Larry David on behalf of Jews or on behalf of victims of sexual assault, I think that's, I don't know, I find that infantilizing. And also, like, this is a comedy show. You come here because you're open to the possibility that people will be telling you jokes and you don't like something. Just wait and move on, and there'll be a next joke. The best way of defending an art form is to just go back to the art. Because I'm an adherent of the sort of classically modern historical notion of stand-up comedy, uh, according to which there's sort of an implicit, uh, discernible, directional progress uh, to the unfolding of joke-telling over time. Um, it just so happens that we're at what one may conceive of as sort of like the, you know, like sort of like the communist totalitarian stage. Uh, and... I know that it's not easy, um, but I promise you that if you stick with me uh, in only two generations' time, uh, perfect hilarity for everyone. Uh, <laughs> will will history vindicate that joke? <laughs> Ought it to? Because I, I think that if you're only asking how much you know, did you laugh, then you're really missing the bigger picture. Um, <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to episode two of Rather Be Reading. Until next time, always keep in mind the bigger picture. And remember...
the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. I'm going down to the library, picking out a book, check it in, check it out. Gonna say hi to the dictionary, picking out a book, check it in, check it out.